0: Captain Capitalism himself. The world's only professional asshole. Aaron Clary. Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome to the Captain Capitalism podcast. I believe it's the, the Aaron Clary podcast. I should get that right, huh? Um, Brought to you by Assholeconsulting.com uh, in conjunction with the League of Extraordinary Podcasts with Carrie Lutz from Financial Survival Network.com, from Lori Zook at 405 Media, and from Blow Me Up Tom. More about that in a moment here. Um, perhaps you can tell by the voice, I'm I'm not actually aaron clary i'm not captain capitalism himself here uh the captain is taking a little time off to to work on his next book apparently he's doing some writing and he's asked a number of uh, guest hosts to come in and 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 help him out and i was listening to the uh, some of his earlier guest hosts. i was listening to the o'shea jackson broadcast from uh, i believe it was the week of the fourth fifth of march and uh and i listened to his list of substitute hosts that he's asked to appear on the show as of that point and i i heard the first couple i thought okay i'm not one of them that's fine that's fine He worked his way down through you know the third and fourth and fifth choices and i still wasn't there and i realized okay i'm like i'm his e or f or g list option to to fill in for him <laughs> boy that uh, that's a fuss flattering i'm kidding it's all cool i'm not renowned for my podcasting uh, and I'm flattered and honored that uh, Aaron asked me to 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 run his podcast for, for a day here. This is uh, going to be a lot of fun, or at least it's going to be a lot of talking. I'll leave it up to you, the, the value judgments. But uh, anyway, as I pointed out, I am not Aaron Clary. I am not Captain Capitalism. I am Captain Obvious because I'm not him. Who am I? My name is Mitch Berg, and some of you might know my voice, and some of you may know uh, something I wrote. We'll start at the top. I do a show every Saturday from 1 to 3 p.m. on AM 1280 The Patriot in the Twin Cities. We're also found on the web at am1280thepatriot.com, and we do a podcast. I do a podcast at uh, am1280thepatriot.com slash podcasts. Look under Mitch Berg, and there I am. I've been doing that show for 13 years. I think it's the longest continuously running conservative libertarian talk show in Minneapolis uh, Twin Cities radio history. And just keep it on going here. I hope you can tune in, uh, either live on the radio or via online or via the podcast, any way you want to. Uh, We're there for you, honest. I also do a blog uh, five days a week. For the last 15 years, I've been writing a blog called Shot in the Dark, which is found on the web at shotinthedark.info. I write mostly about politics, mostly Minnesota politics, but I also do uh, current events, history, uh, a lot of music, actually. In fact, a, an NPR reporter called me the best writer about music in Minnesota today. It was about six years ago. I thought that was kind of flattering, and I kind of wear that one with pride. For For a dumb political blogger, I can branch out a bit. So that's, that's kind of cool. I, I write about biking, cooking, beer, whatever. I just write. I just write stuff. It's fun. Many of you on this broadcast uh, might know me from a book that Aaron was kind enough to give a wonderful review to last uh, late summer, I think Uh, early winter. The book is called Trollbert, a comic novella about the end of the world as we know it. And it looks at, as we talked about, and as, as, as uh, Aaron noted in his review, it talks about uh, freedom versus slavery, about liberty versus order, about good versus evil using, one of mankind's great analytical tools: broad, ham-fisted satire. Ah, it's just—it's a—it's a brick upside the head uh, as far as nuanced political anal- analysis goes. And read it and find out why. It's priced to move at Amazon. Trollbert, T R U L B E R T. That's the only book by that name anywhere in the world. The world. <laughs> Check it out. Let's see. I'm four minutes into this and I'm still introducing myself. What else do we need to know? Uh, I play in a band, uh, two bands actually. One's called Elephant in the Room. It's a classic rock cover band. If you need a bar mitzvah or a wedding or a play that, or a, you got you to gotta put some music up at your bar, go to Elephant in the Room. It's on Facebook. Uh, look for my mug playing guitar on the front. Um have a second band called the Supreme Soviet of Love we've uh, it's an originals band I write well all the music play most of the instruments, but uh check it out we've got an album coming out I believe August first is the target date, and we will be having an album release party sometime around there, provided I can get the rest of the band together to play it so that's that's what I do for everything but my day job. I will talk about my day job in a minute because it's not at all important to this podcast. I mean I just I work I work uh, at a job I enjoy, but that kind of ties into one of the subjects I wanted to talk about here today uh, i've got a lot of things I want to talk about in this hour that Aaron has given me, but we're going to ease our way into some of those things. first I want to talk about is Aaron and I have a lot in common, hence I am hosting his podcast. Uh, we differ on some things. I mean, I'm clearly a, a few years older than him. I've got a couple kids. I've got a granddaughter. I'm way too young to have grandkids, but <laughs> take it up with my son, if you catch my drift. And I, I, I'm a, I don't know. I'm a believer. I mean, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I'm a militant Presbyterian, uh, conservative Presbyterian, which is a odd set of species to try and find in uh, in modern American uh, mainline Christianity. I am a believer because I've never found a compelling, intellectual, intellectually satisfying and compelling reason not to be. You want to disagree with me? That's fine. I don't care. It's your life. Uh, I'm libertarian as far as that goes. We'll come back to the whole libertarian thing a little later on in the podcast. But one big area where I differ from Aaron, and I think it's a fun subject to talk about, which is why I'm going to bring it up, because I, I – look forward to talking with Aaron about this at some point in the near future. Uh, Aaron, as you're well aware, is not a big fan of the modern post-secondary education system. In fact, he's written a good book on the subject, uh, Worthless. I've I've read part of the book. I should, by the way, I, should, I have to say I've, I've read some of Aaron's writing reconnaissance man. And I've read, I've skimmed through parts of worthless. I I'm, not going to make a point of reading most of his books yet. And there's a reason for that. And it's not just that I'm a lazy bastard. I'm I'm going to avoid reading it because one of the best things I ever learned from Larry King as a talk show host uh, on AM radio is Larry King made a point of never pre-reading books because uh, partly because he's a lazy sucker, right? He's a lazy bastard. But beyond that, there's a method to the madness. It helps to approach, I find, uh, approach a book from the same perspective the audience has. The audience doesn't know you, the author, from Jack. So uh, why should you, the host, be asking questions that are far above and beyond what the user would uh, – the listener would be expected to know? Anyway, so I haven't read much of Aaron's stuff yet, although I do plan on it, but I do plan on having him on my show sometime in the near future, and we'll talk about the books, but one of the books is fairly obvious, and it's it's in all of his blog writing and all of his, well, much of his writing that he puts out there is the dissatisfaction he has with the modern post-secondary education system, and I'm dissatisfied with it as well, but not perhaps for all the same reasons. One of the things I want to push back on here a little bit, since I'm here and able to do it, is some of his bagging on humanities degrees. Now, there's a huge caveat to this, but we'll hold off on the caveat for a moment here. I'm just going to introduce this briefly to show you the skin I have in the game. I have a BA in English. I got it years and years ago. I've been out of college for... Way longer than I care to admit right now. But it's I have a BA in English with minors in history and uh, German. And almost enough credits for credits from minor in computer science. But truth be told, I hated computers so badly. By the time I got to the end of college, I dropped out of the minor with a semester to go and didn't touch another computer for a couple of years. This is back when you could still have a career without doing computers at all uh, in the 1980s. And I, with a, and by the way, when I say I got a BA in English, I mean what can you do with a BA in English? You can be a professor, you can be a uh, high school teacher, like my father, who was a great high school English teacher, uh, a speech teacher, uh, or you can go into some form of what literary work or some form of some form of writing. And I didn't want to do any of that. I, I didn't do any of that. I wound up working in radio. Actually, I started working in radio when I was fifteen thought I was done with it when I got out of college. I was not. I wound up staying in it and doing it into my late 20s. Um, and used that e- English major really years after I got out of college um, to start actually working on a real career. Uh, because I got to be, I don't know, in my late 20s and has married and I had two kids and another one on the way. And I was making, I don't know, seven bucks an hour working at WDGY in the Twin Cities as a satellite board operator. And thinking, I really need to start making some bank here. And it was then, out in the real world, with no intention of going to grad school and no intention whatsoever of being uh, doing any of the traditional English major things for a living, that my English major started to pay off. And we'll talk about that when we come back uh, from this break while we uh, hear from Aaron's sponsors, Asshole Consulting, the League of Extraordinary Podcasts, uh, Carrie Lutz from the Financial Survival Network, uh, .com. uh, Lori Zook at 405 Media And Blow Me Up Tom uh, More about them in just a moment here I'm Mitch Berg in for Captain Capitalism Aaron Clary Wait I know, I know, back up This is not radio We don't throw to commercials We just read them live Uh, You heard the sponsors. And by the way, uh, make sure you check out uh, all of Aaron's books. Uh, Reconnaissance Man uh, is out on Amazon right now, as well as Black Man's Guide Out of Poverty. Bachelor Pad Economics, uh, Worthless, also available on audio. Uh, You can give that one to your kids in high school or college. They'll appreciate it. Uh, Enjoy the Decline, uh, Curse of the High IQ. Uh, we'll be talking about all those when I have Aaron on the Northern Alliance here sometime before too terribly long. We'll we'll, we'll do that anyway. We we're talking about differences uh, between Aaron and myself. One of them is his point of view about post secondary education. I, with my BA in English, my minors in history and German, and uh, have a slightly different perspective. And, and I'll and I'll say this because it's been a positive boon for me, a good thing for me, working as I do in. Wait for it. Wait for it. A high tech field. Now, we'll come back to what I do for a living in a moment here, but I, I will say this. I had, I know I shouldn't compare the degree that I got in English uh, at, bro, decades ago uh, with the degrees that kids are getting today, because they're very different things. I get that. I, I was very lucky, very blessed to have the, the major advisor I did. He was a guy named Dr. Jim Blake, who passed away about a year ago. Um, and it's a big whack upside the head there. Because he was one of the biggest influences on my life outside my immediate family. He was my English major advisor. And he was, wait for it, a fire-breathing conservative. In fact, a, a self-described monarchist. And, and he... When I went to college, I should point out, I'm a conservative talk show host today. I've run for office as a libertarian. I've been a Republican, conservative activist, uh, Second Amendment advocate. I grew up in a very liberal family. And when I was 18 and went to college, I was as obnoxious, a liberal bobblehead as anyone you find at the U of M or McAllister or Carleton or St. Olaf or Oberlin or wherever the hell today. And... I didn't know any better. I grew up in a very liberal family. My dad, God bless him, is a a union Democrat, a a, a lifetime teacher. Never been, I don't think he's voted for Republican since Ike. Um, He's, you know, he's moderate Democrat, but I don't think he's voted for Republican ever. My mom, I'm pretty sure had she not been married with three children uh, by the late 60s, would have been a flower child. That's where I grew up. I grew up in a a left-of-center household, and I I carried those beliefs such as they were to college with me. And Dr. Blake took a look at me and said, Mitch, you're not a liberal. And he was the son of a New York cop. He's a New Yorker. He had that kind of accent, so I can get away with it. But he he grabbed me by the scruff of the neck and convinced me, rhetorically speaking, of course, that that I, in fact, was not a liberal, that I was better than all that. He, He made me read stuff like, like Paul Johnson, uh, the former liberal uh, uh, writer for uh, – a British writer who became a conservative later in life and wrote a book called – uh, among many others, a book called Modern Times, History of the World from the 20s to the 80s. Which is probably the – the just dropped the scales from my eyes about how the ac- academia and the media had been co-opted by the loony left going back to the 1930s. I mean, think people think it's a modern phenomenon. It's not. Uh, he also made me read Dostoevsky and Tolstoy. Uh, yeah, as part of an English degree, go figure. Uh, P.J. O'Rourke, who was to the 1980s and 90s what aaron clary is today uh solzhenitsyn he made me read that made me read george orwell uh beyond just 1984 but yeah i had to read all that stuff and i realized a couple of things first of all pretty much everything that i had been taught about the left and taught about the world by the left uh, was wrong and I, I'll, I'll just say, I mean, I I went into a polling station, 1984, and voted for Ronald Reagan for the first time. God knows I didn't tell my parents that it disowned me. I'm pretty sure, maybe not. But you work with me here, uh, and and it felt weird, but I did it. I, I haven't looked back, and I and I credit that to Doctor Blake, who who took some things about me that I did actually start it was starting to wonder about help them coalesce as part of my BA in English and the reason this is important because because Dr. Blake was what a good professor was always supposed to be especially in the humanities especially in liberal arts someone who was there to teach you how to think critically and and he Brutalized the intellectually lazy. I mean, he would kick your ass, rhetorically speaking, if he, he, he expunged all fuzzy, uh, worthless thought from your head the hard way, and enjoyed it, and made you enjoy it. He's a great teacher. He's the kind of teacher everyone should have. I've been for, I've said for years everyone should have and should be lucky enough to have two teachers at some point in their life, one like my dad. It was the, one of the best, best high school teachers you could ever imagine. And, uh, and Dr. Blake, because he taught you critical thinking. It was a freaking rhetorical and intellectual boot camp with him. He made you just, he kicked your butt. It was great. And out of that process, I came out a conservative. I, I don't know how many people can say that these days with a straight face, that they went to college, majored in English, and, and moved from left to right. But I did. And I went out into the world, and I spent, I don't know, seven years after I got out of college working in the radio industry here in the Twin Cities. Uh, Radio guy, disc jockey, talk show host, producer, voiceover guy, a little, I mean, Minnesota North Stars hockey producer. Did a lot of different things. Had very little to do with my degree because I was in radio. And then, like I said before, I was in my late twenties, had two kids and another one on the way. I was married. It needed to make more than seven bucks an hour. and I thought, "What can I do?" And I took some of those critical thinking skills that Dr. Blake had beaten into my head those four years I was in school. And, and, and among those critical thinking skills is, okay, what is the problem? What are you trying to analyze here? Take it apart. Break it down into its pieces. Find what the essence of the real problem was. Find what that you actually bring to this that you can use. And I thought, well, gosh, I need to make some real money. I need to make some actual bank here with my BA in English. What can I do? I got a job as a technical writer writing instruction manuals for crappy software, and it bored me out of my mind. I mean, God love all of you technical writers that are in the audience out there. I just could not do it. I, it bored me stiff. But it got my family out of poverty. And so I owe the perf- uh, owe the craft that. But I figured something out along the way. And this is that critical thinking that we're talking about here, is, is that I could take all the stuff I was doing as a technical writer, explaining to people how to use crappy software, and take those same exact communication skills and turn them towards telling developers how to not develop software that sucks, that abuses its users. And I was able to do that and raise my salary by about 25-30% and raise the level of respect I got around the office by about a thousand percent. Because it was a field that was just taking off about that time, a field called user experience design. Or as I describe it to people who don't know what the field is, making software suck less for real people. It's kind of an esoteric field. And well, if you'll forgive me, I'm going to try and do my best to keep it that way. Because we who are in the field are currently benefiting from kind of a perception of scarcity and a lot of companies don't know they need us, and when they know they need us, they, uh, they need us really bad, and there just aren't that many of us, which translates to, I got to confess, a decent income, especially for a guy with an English major. And it's not that far out. I mean, one of the things you read, another book by Paul Johnson, along with Modern Times, which you should all read, was a book he wrote, I don't know, a few years later called The Birth of the Modern, History of the World from 1815 to 1840. From the Battle of Waterloo to, I don't know, 1840 or thereabouts, a 25-year period when almost everything, not almost everything, but much of what makes up the modern world today actually was born. I mean, every, I mean, People, I mean, coming up with changes in industry and technology, like the Industrial Revolution, the steam engine, the uh, the, uh, the the the, 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 uh, the urban center that we have today. Changes in technology, like steam propulsion, like the uh, the internal combustion engine, the, the badget machine, which was an a- the first analog computer uh, that led. Was it? I think I've got the name wrong. Um, I forget that. Not badget, it, It's something like that. I'm blitzing on it. And I'm not going to look it up right now because I'm live. Uh, I mean, the first analog computer that was uh, the ancestor of all modern computing technology, uh, engineering things like the modern highway, the it's uh, the internal combustion engine, the steam ship, the 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 telegraph. Uh, changes not only just in technology and engineering and industry, but the arts, classical music, Beethoven became what he is. And and the the classical era brought things out of of art that had never existed before. But be things beyond that. I mean, cooking, uh, apparel, I mean, the trousers were invented. and, And how that revolutionized the lives of men. I mean, you could write a book about that. Uh, changes in foreign policy changes in democracy the idea of one person one vote democracy didn't start in i mean it may have been brooded around in 1776 but it didn't really become a viable thing until the 1840s and 1830s didn't start happening in the wild uh so many different areas thing inventions everything from the rifled cannon to the color yellow in paint to be able to paint sunlight in a painting, I'm huge advances. And the thing that strikes you about the people who brought these advances about, from people like James Watt to John Audubon to to John uh, Turner, the painter, to all of them, uh, to Samuel Morse, the inventor of the Morse code, to all of them, was they were all completely self-taught, and they, they, they. they most of them had no more than, I don't know, a third grade education, if that. They were all completely self-taught in mechanics and engineering and philosophy and art. Not one or the other. Most of them, you, you look at the great mechanics and inventors and uh, of the era, a good engineer had to be a good artist because you had to communicate your design somehow. You didn't have AutoCAD back then. You didn't have didn't even have Adobe Illustrator back in the 1840s. And so you had to not only teach yourself and they did teach themselves, but they taught themselves this incredibly broad swath of stuff that you'd never see together today. I mean, engineers usually aren't artists today uh, other than maybe as a hobby, maybe, maybe. And that was important, I thought. Because it was an inspiration I needed to teach myself how to do a completely new field, a field that was basically brand new here in the Twin Cities and mostly new around the country. And I couldn't have done it without the skills I learned as an English major. And and I'm not the only one. I mean, if you work in the world of software and you find out where people got their undergrads and in what, you find out that a lot of people in the world of software have degrees in music I mean, some of the best programmers I know have BAs in music. Go figure. I had one other advantage, I think, that kids today don't have. And we'll talk about that when I come back here. I'm Mitch Berg, in for Aaron Clary, Captain Capitalism. Go nowhere. I'll be right back. Anyway, I probably didn't need to take a break there either. It's just one of those habits you get into in radio—fifteen minutes apart, you got to stop and pay the bills. And people are already paying the bills for uh, for Aaron Clary and Cap and Capitalism and his whole uh, empire. Of course, asshole consulting, the League of Extraordinary Podcasts, Carrie Lutz of the Financial Survivor and network.com, dot uh, com, Lori Zook at four hundred five Media, and blow me up, Tom. Uh, patronize all of them. Do it now. That's what pays the bills here. I, we don't have commercials; we just have sponsors, and that's uh, the way it should be. So, patronize all of those great sponsors of the Aaron Clary podcast. My name Mitch Berg of AM twelve eighty, the Patriot in the Twin Cities. Also, the blog Shot in the Dark dot info. Uh, hope you can tune in. Read whatever y'all want to do. I, I was talking about my differences with Aaron on the whole liberal arts degree thing. Because as I explained the last 10 minutes or so, uh, having a degree in English saved my ass. I mean, it taught me uh, how the critical thinking skills I needed to basically conjure a career out of my butt, essentially. I mean, no one taught me how to do what I do. I taught myself. And not to say that anyone couldn't do it. Anyone can if they're wired that way if their brain is tuned that way and if they well have either have it naturally or or have it trained into them by someone you can get that in well you can get that in darn near any degree program if you're lucky you can you can learn how to Think you can learn how to teach yourself. You can learn how to solve problems and analyze issues and and tear a problem down to its essence in any degree you want. Whether it's mechanical engineering or or robotics or or or, or English or history or or Elizabethan poetry, for all it matters, you can. But here's where I think Aaron has a point, and, and other critics of our current post-secondary educational industrial complex have a point, and that is while you can appro- you learn how to approach problems from that perspective with a degree in almost anything, provided you have a relatively sharp kid and professors who are interested in teaching that sort of skill, I think it's fair to say most kids today don't get that. I mean... You look at what happened has happened to the English Academy since I was a student, and they've gone from the, the, the sort of focus on critical thinking and analysis and taking things apart on their own merit and, and, and relative objectivity that they had when I was a student, and gone to this uh, Extremely top-down post-structuralist idea, where basically there is all of all of literature is a participation trophy these days, and nothing really means anything. And to attempt to ascribe meaning to anything means you're basically a, a, a intellectual fascist or, or old-fashioned, which is even worse. And you can't even get heard, and that's not even the worst of it. Because if you're not a comp, I mean, first of all, there's always been professors who were douchebags. Uh, in fact, they may be the majority, not the exception. But here's the worst thing that's happened. When I started out going for my degree in English, my professor, Dr. Blake, the great, one of the greatest teachers any human ever had, made it very clear that unless you wanted to be an English teacher in high school or go through years of graduate school and do all of the butt kissing and moving around that you had to do to get into a tenure track position. You weren't going to make a a living directly as an English major. And if you could, there would be jobs working like working for the modern library association, like a friend of mine did when he got out with his degree in English, living in working in New York, making 14 K a year, annotating bibliographies Woohoo! gonna reel in the babes that way, huh? I mean, you're living in a living in a sharing a, a two-bedroom apartment with four guys in New Brunswick, New Jersey, taking the train into New York and working for, well, you do the math, 14 grand a year, that's seven bucks an hour in nineteen eighty-seven. Even then that wasn't a whole hell of a lot of money. So it was pretty much a, a given that if you wanted to make any money, I you had, and, and by that, I mean, make enough li- of a living to, I don't know, raise a family, have some options, take a vacation. You weren't going to count on getting a job in your field. And I never did count on it. I, I knew I was done with school. I never had the faintest intention of going to grad school, did not in plan on whoring myself out to play the paper chase to get a, a tenure track uh, degree position anywhere. It wasn't my thing. Never did it. Never will. But today you talk with college kids, whatever their degree is in, and they think they have a real expectation of getting a degree quote in my field end quote and Of course, it's not true. I mean, unless you're a engineering major a major you know, some sort of technology or or some sort of degree with a direct skill transfer, like nursing or education, probably. Uh, not even most of your business degrees. Uh, you're, you're you're basically thinking you're basically in a position where, unless you plan on spending a lot of time in grad school and playing the paper chase, which is basically a big roulette game, unless you're in a field like math or science or engineering, you're basically gambling that either you can find a job thrown down the academic trail, or you're going to have to do something else, or be happy not making a hell of a lot of money doing something that's somewhere close to what you love. For example, you're an art major. You want to spend your life as a, as a tour guide in an art gallery making nine bucks an hour. I'm not going to judge you for it. If you can live a life commensurate with that kind of income and you're happy doing it, more power to you. Mazel tov. Good for you. Once you have kids that goes out the window Uh, That brings us to another whole uh, level of of lunacy, and that's some of our minimum wage advocates. I'm not going to talk about that this time. But the fact is, I don't think kids today get the one great blessing that I had from a liberal arts degree, from a humanities degree, from my degree in in English, or as I used to call it, grammatical engineering, uh, and minors in history and German. The background in critical thinking and the idea that you needed to have that critical thinking because unless you were going to do the grad school route, you were not going to get a job as doing English, doing history, doing political science. If you're going to major in any of those things, it was up to you to figure out how you're going to turn that into a life you could live with. Either scale down your expectations or scale up your critical thinking and your ability to find something that that paid the bills. And by the way, like I said, some of my best programmer friends had uh, computer programmer friends and systems analysts had degrees in music. Uh, my mentor in my field had a PhD in folklore. No, I didn't make that up. He had a PhD, still has a PhD in folklore. And I'm going to guess that while the average PhD in folklore is probably working at a Barnes and Noble for nine bucks an hour, he's probably making somewhere in in low to mid six figures, like well over two hundred bills. So it's the the important thing is not getting too knotted up about what is written on that diploma you have, and worrying about what's written in that brain that that diploma was supposed to affect. That's the good news. The bad news is for so many kids today and so many people who've graduated from our academic system in the last 15 to 20 years, what the system has written into their heads is a bunch of crap. And if you've been reading Aaron's books, that's not even news to you. You know this. Speaking of crap written into people's heads, uh, yesterday, as I record this, it's a Thursday evening in St. Paul, Minnesota, and yesterday... Was the day without women. It was a, a s- supposedly a general strike. One of those by the way, when you hear the term general strike," you know you're talking a bunch of lefty bobbleheads who, uh, who were raised on, on Mao Zedong. Uh, it was a general strike, supposedly, by women, a, a day in conjunction with National Women's Day to, uh, to, to pay homage to, to women. And it was done sort of at the last, you know, kind of on the last minute as a copy of The Day Without Immigrants. And, and by the way, I had so much fun on The Day Without Immigrants, uh, duking it out with some of my liberal friends who said, yeah, you yeah, know, a lot of people at my favorite restaurant uh, were having a hard time getting service because all the immigrants didn't show up. And of course, no word on how many of them got fired. But they were they they sat there like, making a that... That face that toddlers make when they make a good pants saying, yep, labor sure is important. Uh, To which I replied, so you think that if you took a bunch of waiters, dishwashers, short order cooks and barbacks and you plunked them out on the boulevard somewhere, a restaurant would spontaneously form around them? Because that's what they're basically saying. Without labor, there would be no productivity whatsoever. And they have a point to an extent, but without the capital to build the restaurant or the bar or whatever that the, the people are working at, and without management to make sure that people show up to work at it, you got nothing. Anyway, the same goes for women. And by the way, I... I, for the record, beg of you, if you are a feminist snowflake, to please, please talk with me about the wage gap. Try and, and convince me that there is such a thing as a wage gap ever. It'll be fun, I promise. Anyway, more about the day without women uh, when I come back, because I've got to dash upstairs and just occupy yourself for a moment here. Don't go anywhere. I'll be right back on the Aaron Clary Podcast. Needed that. Oh, hi. I'm Mitch uh, Berg, back for Aaron, uh, Aaron Clary, Captain Capitalism. Of course, uh, the, the Aaron Clary podcast brought to you by AssholeConsulting.com, the name all of us S-Corps wish we had taken first, uh, The League of Extraordinary Podcasts by Carrie Lutz of the FinancialSurvivalNetwork.com, by Laurie Zook of 405 Media, and by Blow Me Up Tom, who, by the way, is none other than Tom Likas. Now, that name... May only mean to you what Aaron has told you about him as as a as a, as a leading podcaster today, but Tom Likas, going back to the 1980s, was well today he's something of an endangered species because going back 30 odd years now he was the godfather of liberal talk radio back when there really was such a thing. I, I'm talking like back during the fairness doctrine when politics wasn't really as big a part of talk radio. He was Captain Liberal. And he was good at it. Don't get me wrong. He was not like those hamsters at Air America when they were doing, uh, so-called liberal talk radio back in the two thousands, uh, you know, Al Franken and his, uh, band of, of, and, and Janine Garofalo and, and, and the rest of those hamsters, you know, Mike Malloy, that's psycho. No, this guy was good and he's good today in the podcast world. So check him out. Blow me up. Uh, Tom, like Gary Zabransky. good stuff. Check it out. Um, Talking about the Day Without Women, for now at least, which happened yesterday here in the Twin Cities and around the country, as this is being recorded, Uh, and it's modeled after the, the Day Without Immigrants, which was just a comical yak fest. I mean... A day without immigrants well gosh if if we it depends on what immigrants we're talking about doesn't it i mean if we had to do without indian computer programmers uh, the american software industry would grind to a halt there's not enough programmers out there uh, we have to do without illegal immigrants well i don't know maybe an american cook or a rougher or uh, or or landscaper can get a job again I, you know i mean it's, it's gutted the value of 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 low skill labor in this country and I just love the my liberal friends who look at the at, at the complete collapse of the economy in places like North Minneapolis and then white me about how very much pro-immigrant they are. And I thought, well, you don't connect the two? You don't connect that it's impossible for low-skilled workers and and. And people perhaps with criminal records or with, with terrible educational background, like most people who come out of inner city schools these days, to get a job with the fact that it's impossible to get a low wage job because it's cheaper to hire an immigrant, legal or not, in this country. You never made that connection. Anyway, all of the patent illogic isn't even the big part that bugs me about the, the day without women. Uh, and I'm going to preface what I'm going to say with, with something that I think is kind of important. And that is, I love women, and not for all the obvious reasons as a straight guy. Okay, get your mind out of the gutter. Some of my favorite people in the world are, are women. I mean, my mother was one, my sister, my, both my grandmothers were, were women. You know, some of my favorite people in my life now happen to be female. God bless them for it. And most of them are, are and, and by the way, I, I work with a lot of very sharp, very capable female coworkers workers uh, of a variety of different uh, persuasions, uh, ethnically and socially, and, and in terms of background, and, and, and they're wonderful people to work with. And here I am talking like I'm Jane, Goodell, uh, Jane Goodall describing the gorillas in the mist. No, they're women, they're half the population, uh, and they're all different types of people. But in the wake of the big women's march a couple of weeks ago, which brought uh, somewhere between 500,000 and 50 million people out into the streets, depending on who you listen to, uh, we, we've been hearing mostly from one particular type of woman, a woman who is, well, relentlessly left of center, uh, politically correct, if you will. And as, as they are always inevitably described, they're always described as, uh, and by the way, described by themselves and women like them, people who are women who are left of center and come from a white, generally white, upper middle class background, describing each other and, and women just like them, but not women distinct from them. They're always described as, well, my regular voice doesn't get it across. I'm going to just just hit the voice o here real quick. Bear with me just a second. These women are always described by themselves as strong, powerful, woke women. Because as you've perhaps noticed, if the far left can't communicate through a megaphone, a bullhorn, a loudspeaker, then they can't communicate any way at all. Anyway, I've just noticed how these strong, powerful, fearless, woke women... Oh, that kind of loses something... Uh, okay, I've noticed how these strong, powerful, woke women express that strength and power by constantly having to reassure themselves how strong, powerful, and woke they all are And, and, and how absolutely perfectly they excise everyone who believes anything different from them from their lives because otherwise they wouldn't be apparently... Strong, powerful, woke women. If there is even the faintest tread of cognitive dissonance going on around them. And I, I hear these people, and I, I won't say just women, because of course you have a lot of, and I quote men, end quote, who like to virtue signal by aligning themselves with the strong powerful, woke women, but whose biggest and most constant task seems to be shutting up, shaming, bullying into silence everyone around them who doesn't agree with them in every possible respect, which is not what I consider strong or powerful or what's the other term? Fearless. Oh my God, everyone's got to be fearless. And I, and I want to. I, I want to talk to these self-styled, strong, powerful, woke women and ask them, hey, Snowflake, I would love to see you go a few rounds with my sainted grandmother, my father's mother, who, who really was the real thing. I mean, she was a single parent long before it was cool. I, her, her husband, my grandfather, died uh, 20 years before I was born during the very worst month of World War II. Uh, the early part of 1942 when my father, her only child was about what, five years old and had to not only raise a kid by herself in the middle of a war in one of the darkest times in, in Western history, but run a business, a photography studio by herself. So she raised my dad and did not a half bad job doing it and ran a business in a little town where she did not have a big support network of other strong, powerful, woke women to kibitz with at yoga class about how strong, powerful, and fearless and woke they were. And and I want to tell today's so-called feminists, you would shrivel up like a daisy in a hurricane if you had to live my grandmother's life. Life would go through you, my grandmother's life would go through you, like a power mower through a cabbage patch. You do not rate snowflake. And of course, that's not my most civil understanding self speaking. But then over the recent years, I guess I've found I've learned to give my reasonable civil self a much shorter leash than I used to because I'm getting tired of him. Anyway, that was a day without women. All the women I know were at work because they got families to pay for, and they need their jobs, and s- s- symbolic protest by a bunch of other upper-middle-class bobblehead liberals don't really mean that much to, I don't know, the women that actually make any difference in this economy, in this nation's life. My two cents worth. Feel free to argue with me about it. I'm all for it Anyway. That's what was going on there. Uh, anyway, my name, Mitch Berg. I'm in for Aaron Clary on the Aaron Clary podcast. Uh, he'll be back soon. He's busy writing right now. Uh, right now he's, uh, he's sponsored by assholeconsulting.com, the League of Extraordinary Podcasts, Kerry Lutz of financial survival com, Lori Zook of 405 media, and of course, blow me up, Tom. Tom Lykus and uh, Gary Zabransky and their uh, little podcast, Micro Empire. Check them out. Check them all out. By all means, do. My name is Mitch Berg, uh, found on am1280thepatriot.com, also at shotinthedark.info. I'll be back for one more go-around right after this. Anyway, hey, I'm Mitch Berg uh, from AM 1280, The Patriot, from shotinthedark.info, and uh, from uh, the band Elephant in the Room, if you're so inclined, (laughs) to uh, in for Aaron Clary for Captain Capitalism. Uh, Check out his sponsors. Uh, Go to his Amazon affiliate uh, program because you buy things through Amazon via his affiliate links a bing He makes a buck or two, and you support this uh, program. Also, buy his books, Reconnaissance Man, The Black Man's Guide Out of Poverty, Bachelor Pad Economics, Worthless, Either Readable or an Audio, uh, Enjoy the Decline, and The Curse of the High IQ. And, and by the way, I fully intend to have Aaron on my show, the Northern Alliance Radio Network on AM 1280, The Patriot, before too terribly long here. Uh, and, and I'm going to talk with him about a couple of these books. Uh, worthless is a big one, close to my heart for a lot of reasons. Uh, Curse of the high IQ, definitely. I could stand to talk about that one as a a spectator, not as a participant in the high IQ thing. Actually, uh, that'll be an interesting conversation because I'll tell you, one of the best things my parents ever did was when I asked them one time, one time I asked them, what is my IQ, mom and dad? I was probably, I don't know, sixth or seventh grade at the time. And they said, well, you've got an IQ of 95, Mitch. Um, you're not stupid. You just have to work a little harder to get what all the other kids have. It, I, I don't know if they're being serious or not. Honestly, I don't care. That was the message. Not to care about some some number that is assigned to you by a fairly arbitrary uh, test that may or may not have anything to do with the real life you live or how you apply intelligence to problems you see. Uh, it's it's never... Uh, I. I couldn't begin to tell you what my IQ is. I do know that people who do know their IQs and for whom that number happens to be kind of on the high side it kind of messes them up. I mean they start I mean the lucky ones start to think, yeah, maybe the maybe this IQ is going to be my my path to easy street and it, it's not. I mean you actually have to apply intelligence somehow and you tell a kid their IQ is high too early in the life, and and they never, my experience, they don't learn how to apply it. Now there are exceptions, clearly. I you know why chance it? That's my two cents worth. Oh, one of many good discussions, Erwin will have sometime when I get him on the Northern Alliance Radio Network. Speaking of stupid things, uh, a couple of things that that I hear from people constantly just drive me crazy. Number one. If you're going to be jabbering about the zipper merge, ah! I swear, someday there will be data that comes out to show that this whole idea of the zipper merge is a complete fraud. And that mostly it's just a, a fraud that's done to serve as a boost to the ego of of clinical narcissists who like to think that they're fantastic drivers and say, hey, you should all be zipper merging like me. I, I'd be amazed if it saves a tenth of a second per driver for a year. That's my two cents worth. If you find a real honest to God traffic engineer to to convince me, uh, feel free to have them have their people give me a call. Because it's never the traffic engineers you see prattling about the zipper merge. It's always bobble-headed listical writers for, for BuzzFeed or some social media clickbait firm or another jabbering about the zipper merge. I, I remain to be convinced and until I am bull. It's it's crap. Uh, the other one that drives me crazy is all these people who, who talk about Minnesota nice as as which we all is described as a form of passive aggression. Describe it as a bad thing. It's not. It's not a bad thing. I mean, to an extreme, it can be a bad thing. I mean, any toxic personality trait is a bad thing. But the idea of passive aggression as opposed to what? Aggressive aggression? I mean, that's one thing, I think, for all the crap that Scandinavians and people of northern European descent take, the fact that they're emotionally closed off, stoic, and uncommunicative is a wonderful thing. I'm thinking of how much of the world's productivity and happiness is bled off because people just can't shut up about their damned emotions and blubbering about how they feel and, and about, about, what, about how they feel inside. It's like nobody cares. The people who think they can't say they care, unless they're members of your close friend circle or immediate family, they're full of crap. Anyway, I just I think there are times, I think, when I look at today's millennials and think one of the great blessings I had in my life is that I grew up at a time when nobody gave a crap what you felt like. I mean, my high school principal was a marine fighter pilot in World War II. His assistant had been a marine of the Chosin Reservoir in Korea. You know, the guys who marched across the mountains when it was 20 below in a howling wind and the tricom the shooting at them? carrying their wounded with them, and they made it? He was one of them. Tell him how you feel and you get backhanded. And I think that was a good thing because let's be honest. I mean, when I was a kid, you were, you were entitled, you were growing up again out in the middle of nowhere uh, under the charge of people who survived World War II and Korea and Vietnam. Yes, Vietnam veterans, I'm not that old. Shut up. Anyway, they, uh, because you didn't spend any time blubbering about your feelings, you actually had to cope with things. And th- there are those who will say, okay, well, how many people killed themselves? Well, there's a good question for you. What do you suppose has happened with the teen suicide rate in the last 35 years, 30 years, 20 years? Pick your time frame. It's gone up. It's not going down. And as it became acceptable for people to blubber on about their feelings on and on and on, the suicide rate has risen. And I think it's time for a a comeback of good old-fashioned, not Minnesota nice, screw that crap, a a comeback of, of the old stoic, northern European stoicism. Saying, okay, you know, deal with your crap, but don't inflict it on me. The world's a happier place, and you're a happier person because instead of blubbering to everyone about how miserable you feel, you actually have to deal with it. Or not. But that's what 12-step groups are for, for crying out loud. Anyway, uh, let's see. Uh, what are we talking about here? Oh, yeah, Talk about libertarians. God, I've forgotten all about them. I used to be – I was actually a libertarian. I mean, I'm a, I am ai grew up liberal. I mentioned that before. I grew up liberal uh, in a very liberal family, well, a fairly liberal family, and uh, became a conservative just in time for Ronald Reagan, stayed with it until about 1994 when the, the, the Republicans cave in on, the Dem- on Bill Clinton's crime bill, disgusted me to the point where I said, I can't do this anymore. And I joined the Libertarian Party. I actually ran for office as state treasurer here in Minnesota in, in, in 1998, the same year Jesse Ventura won. And I won a moral victory. Uh, no, I mean I got thirty six thousand votes. Big whoop. Nobody cares. It was about one percent of the vote, maybe maybe less. Uh, but I won a moral victory because the my only platform plank was to get rid of the office of state treasurer. And as it happens, after I got endorsed by the Libertarian Party, a a uh, initiative referendum came out to uh, for for the people of Minnesota to vote on getting rid of that office, and they voted for it two to one. And you can't get much more libertarian than the people abolishing things themselves without the help of some stinking politician. So I I had a lot of fun as a libertarian and I quit and I would do it again because I swear while libertarian philosophy has a lot to recommend it. And if you listen to Aaron, I suspect you, you hear a lot of it. I think I found out what the big problem with libertarians is the biggest problem with the libertarian movement, with the libertarian party is libertarians and the members of the libertarian movement and the libertarian party. Uh, what am I talking about? Well, we'll come back to that in just a moment here. I'm Mitch Berg, in for Aaron Clary, uh, brought to you by Asshole Consulting, the League of Extraordinary Podcasts, Carrie Lutz of at FinancialSurvivalNetwork.com, Lori Zook at 405 Media, and Blow Me Up, Tom. Go nowhere. We'll be right back. All right, I needed that. Last segment, Mitch Berg in for Aaron Clary, Captain Capitalism, on uh, the Aaron Clary broadcast. Don't forget to check out Amazon, uh, Aaron's Amazon affiliate link, which is where Aaron makes a fair chunk of money. That's uh, If you want to support this podcast, that's how to do it. Uh, that and patronizing his sponsors. Also buying his books, Reconnaissance Man, Black Man's Guide Out of Poverty, Bachelor Pad Economics, Worthless but in both convenient written and audio forms and enjoy the decline as well as curse of the high IQ. I do plan on having Aaron on my show. That would be the Northern Alliance Radio Network every Saturday from 1 to 3 p.m. He won't be on every Saturday, but on an upcoming Saturday, uh, we'll, we'll hope to have Aaron on the broadcast with me. I also write the blog shotinthedark.info, yadda, yadda, yadi. More on that a uh, little later on here. So I started talking about the Libertarian Party, which I left. And I got to tell you why. Uh, it boils down to... Well, a lot of things. It's a complex thing, but it really boils down to three words. Three words you hear when you listen to or read pretty much any garden variety Minnesota libertarian today. Three words that are recited with all the thought of a robot saying three words. In fact, I think that's how I will portray it, as a robot saying, taxation is theft. And I get it. I truly do. I'm a self-employed consultant right now, and I get it. Taxation sucks. It's not really theft, per se, because you're not having it taken away from you for nothing. You're having it taken away from you in exchange for a good or a service you didn't ask for. And the technical term for that is extortion, I believe. I don't know. Ask your county prosecutor. I don't know. But when I was a libertarian... Way back when. Get off my lawn. Now, when I was in the Libertarian Party, the problem the party had was it was a lot of people who were big brains or self-styled big brains who liked to sit around thinking big thoughts all the time. And they would be so impressed with their own perspicacity that they would never actually do a damn thing outside those rooms. They would live in their echo chamber and have a glorious time of it. And by God, Libertarian conventions are fun. They are. But somewhere along the way, some of them got the idea that if you kept repeating chanting points over and over again, things like taxation is theft. And that's fine and dandy, but I want to ask yourself, and what is the alternative? I mean, the real alternative. And and when they say things like taxation is theft, frequently, if not always, in, in, in concert with other chanting points like here, have some more government. And I want to go, I agree with the idea. But have you thought through the alternatives? I, I mean, Okay, we have a fair number of libertarians out there who style themselves as anarchists or anarcho-capitalists. And I'm fine with the basic idea. I mean, I got skills. I got guns and ammo. I got water for... No, I don't have guns and ammo or water purification equipment. I got none of that stuff. Nothing. Nothing. Uh, but but the idea, the idea that if you just get everyone together and take away all authority above them and all power anyone has over anyone else that, that is currently codified by government, the, the idea that, that mankind will revert to a state of, of noble participatory voluntary agreement with each other is pretty naive. <laughs> I mean, libertarians think that what Nietzsche called the will to power is a symptom of government. The, 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 The urge to have power over other people, to inflict violence on other people, to have a monopoly on violence over other people is a symptom of having government. And it's pretty much the other way around. I mean, you look at all of human history. When, the, when has there been a spontaneously free society that just sprang up out of nowhere? And if you're going to make any answer, I'm going to bet you anything you're going to answer some hunter-gatherer society, some some hunter-gatherer tribe in in, in the American Great Plains or, or Australia or the New Guinea Highlands. And yeah, when you're a hunter-gatherer, you could certainly you're certainly free and government is pointless because nobody's got power to hold, nobody's got time or energy to hold power over other people uh, because they're busy spending all of their time from sunup to sundown gathering food to eat because they're hunter-gatherers. That's what they do. Except when they don't, because eventually, not always, but eventually someone among the hunter-gatherers figures out, oh, yeah, it's easier to take, what you need, than it is to go out and hunt and gather it. And then the tribe comes up with some mechanism for saying, no, you can't take what ain't yours, which is manifested in the form of some form of authority, which becomes government. Or the people who want to do the stealing take over, a la Negan from Walking Dead, and they become the de facto government. And don't the order there. The will to power over other people comes first. Government comes second. And then all of the manifestations it has on your life come after that, in that order. Anyway. Here's an experiment to prove it, by the way. Put a bunch of people in the same room. And when I say a bunch of people, I mean, I don't mean a bunch of libertarians who tend to be, for better or worse, a bunch of white male, middle class guys between the ages of, I don't know, 30 and 50. Have a few of them, but have a little bit of everything else anyway. Put a bunch of these people into a room. All kinds of people. All socioeconomic backgrounds. All, every, every kind of different background you can imagine. And see what happens. Because people spontaneously form social orders. They do. And the more people you have in that space, the greater the odds that one of those social orders that they spawn is going to be predatory on some of the other social orders that, sp- that pop up in that room go up. And some of those social orders become governments, I mean, you look at the history of the United Kingdom, and you look at like the Queen of England, Queen Elizabeth. There's a lot of pomp and circumstance and ceremony, and that's the way it's been for about four or five hundred years in the UK. The, the 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 monarchy is a fairly genteel, fairly mannered thing. And but you look back in history, but when when England was pulling itself out of the tribal eras, out of the Stone Age into the Bronze Age, uh, and the kings that came up had a lot more in common with Al Capone and and, 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 and the, the Crips and the, the Bloods and, and the Thirteens and La Raza than they had with today's royalty because that's what they were. They're groups of people who were out there, as representatives of groups of people who were out there trying to take or at least not get taken from. And the best way not to get taken from is to kill the people who might be taking from you. And you start out as a hunter-gatherer tribe, you work your way through trying not to get your stuff taken, and you end with what? Game of Thrones! (laughs) Anyway, order is a prerequisite for prosperity. It just is. You can't have prosperity without order. You can't produce something and take it to the market and sell it for a profit if you don't have a reasonable expectation you're going to get there without getting held up on the highway. Or swindled when you get to the marketplace. And without prosperity, freedom is meaningless. Because if you are a hunter-gatherer, you may be free for a while. But you're so busy working to stay alive that your freedom isn't worth a whole lot to you other than for the fact that you're not a slave. Good for you. How many of you want to have freedom without some kind of prosperity? You can't have prosperity without order. And you can't have freedom, meaningful freedom, without prosperity. And by the way, you can't have meaningful order without freedom. Otherwise, it's just tyranny. And the balance between all of those things is complicated which is something our founding fathers knew, which is why our founding fathers, while they may have had broad, wide, well-lit libertarian streaks, were not libertarians. They came up with something that was somewhere between libertarian and conservative, recognizing the need for order as well as freedom, and accepting as a given that you're going to have to have the two of those things duking it out with each other forever, or you're always going to be hosed. Anyway... Thus endeth my sermon. Uh, I think I'm up to about my time here. I'd like to thank Aaron for inviting me to come on. We'll see if he does that again. <laughs> Check out his books. Reconnaissance man, the black man's guide out of poverty, bachelor pad economics, worthless, also available on audio. Uh, Enjoy the decline, curse of the high IQ. And I think something new coming up here soon. That's, I think, is what he's working on now, right in the way. We'll, we'll see here. We'll find out soon. Uh, of course, this is the podcast brought to you by assholeconsulting.com, the League of Extraordinary Podcasts, Carrie Lutz from the Financial Survival Network.com, Lori Zook of 405 Media, and Blow Me Up, Tom. I am Mitch Berg from AM1280, The Patriot from Shot in the Dark, from the book Trollbert, and much, much more. Thanks for tuning in. Hope to see, hear you all again soon. Bye-bye.